going to be reading God's Word. It's from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, and it's the first 16 verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless Jonathan as he unpacks your word for our good and for our benefit. We take time to ask you you'll protect Robbie and Margaret as they travel to Kenya. Keep them safe, go ahead, and prepare hearts and minds to hear the good news of Jesus. And for us now, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. It is lovely to see you uh, this morning. Um, we're going to open then <clears throat> First Peter. We're going to start uh, chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to focus this morning in verses 13 to 16. Just before that, in your uh, Christmas cards, you will have a verse of the year card, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. Uh, we'll open that up in the, the week of January, um, and you'll have that. You can put it on your fridge, stick it where you like, but that's going to be uh, our verse of the year for next year. So we are back here um, and excited to be. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in uh, First Peter here. 
I want to think for a little minute about a cause and effect. This universal principle that everything happens for a reason. This idea that when something causes something, there is always a reaction to it. If your car breaks down, well, something has to happen with it. It either gets towed or you get it fixed. You're hungry, so the natural reaction is you eat. You stack a line of dominoes precisely one after the other, and you push it, what happens? They all fall over. You take lessons in anything from knitting to carpentry to football. You take lessons in something, you would hope you would start to get better at that thing. Now, what verses 1 to 12 have, um, even just if you want to stick it up there, it's okay, Laura. Um, verses 1 to 12 we've looked at have detailed for us the stunning work of God in the life of a believer. That's what we've gone through so far. What the Lord has done for us. You, you look and you recap in those first 12 verses. We have been born again into a living hope. We have an inheritance that is unperishable undefiled and unfading. We can rejoice in trials and we have the privilege of beholding these glorious realities. That's what we come to in the first 12 chapters of First Peter. He's saying, elect exiles, friends, look at all that God has done for you. Look at his work for you. Look at how he has come to you, how he has delivered you, remembering at all times that you are the elect exiles. You are not of this world. You are split up. You're small in number. Your trials are many, but this is what the Lord has done for you. And we come then this morning, and actually to sum all of that up in the next verse, simply as elect exiles stand firm in the true grace of God. If we could sum up everything of those first 12 verses, and even really where we're going today, this is what we come to. So we have then all that God has done for us, all that God has done for these believers, what God has done for us. Incredible realities. That no longer does sin have dominion and power over us because we are children of God. No longer do we have an inheritance that is nothing. No longer do we have an inheritance that says, one day, friends, we will be in hell with Satan. No but instead we now have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is wonderfully good news. These first three weeks in, in 1 Peter 1 verses 1 to 12 are marvelous. And I think what Peter does here from verse 13 is he almost preempts the question, this is wonderful for eternity. This is wonderful in times to come, but what about right now? We know we have a future hope of glory. We know that there is stunning realities that are ahead for us. What about right now? You've called us the elect exiles. You know we face great trials. You know there are great struggles that come upon us. We are suffering. What shall we do? And it's perhaps maybe the question you have. I know that there's a big picture. I know that there's a great big picture that I am safe in the palms of the Lord Jesus. I know that my inheritance is secure, but what hope do I have right now? And this is the question then that we ask this morning. What effect will God's glorious work for believers have in your life? Verses 13 to 16 is saying the cause is verses 1 to 12. The effect is verse 13 to 16. This is who God is. This is what God has done. So what are you going 
to do about it. Peter goes then from telling us, he moves uh, using the word therefore, that takes us from our first 12 on. He takes us then from celebrating the glorious work of redemption, now to addressing how we should live in light of our redemption. You see, we saw very, very early, we have our identity. Our identity is as elect exiles. And then we're told how to live, and that is to stand firm in the true grace of God. You notice in the first 12 verses, there's no commands, no exhortations, no imperatives for the people. It is purely, this is who God is. This is what God's doing. And between verse 13 and the third verse of the second chapter, there are five commands. And we're going to look at the first two in these verses this morning. So our first of that is the transformative power of hope. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace that brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We live to reflect the future hope, the heavenly hope that we have and to reflect the true identity that we now have in the Lord Jesus. You see, the promise of this future, uh, this heavenly future that we have as one with God in heaven, it's not just about some kind of insurance for the future, but it is about the transformative power here in the present. And to simply say that our identity as Christians, our identity in the Lord Jesus informs everything in every single part of our life. It informs our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, every single part of our being. We've gone from recounting all that God has done, because that's never far from our minds, friends. It can never be far from our minds. We want to live as people of Jesus. We cannot take away all that he has done for us. We become more like Jesus the more we know of what he has done for us. But you see in this and the therefore is saying that because of verses 1 to 12, because of your identity, your identity is rooted in the fact that you are his children. You don't change your behavior to be accepted by God, but you are welcomed in his family and now Everything that you are is transformed slowly, little by little, in the walk of life, influenced by the Lord Jesus. The command then is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is not passive, but hope for us as Christians is rooted in the sovereign work of God in verses 1 to 12. We'll recap a... That list, we've been born again into a living hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We can rejoice in trials, and we have the privilege of beholding these glorious realities. This is our reality. This is who we are. This is what we build everything that we are upon, the work of the risen Lord Jesus. So we respond then to the work of God in our lives by hoping in Him by trusting in him and by putting our faith fully in the grace of God. You see, Peter, eh, as he does, uses hope and faith almost interchangeably. And of course, faith is trusting that the Lord will do as he says he will do. And hope for us is trusting in this future grace that he has promised. 
It is for us being absolutely sure that God is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he's done, and he's going to do what he says he will do. We read those famous words in in, in chapter 3, verse 15, that we'll come to maybe in a few months from now if it takes us to get there. But it reads, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You have a hope. Your hope is built not on yourselves. It is not found in your own identity, but it's found in what God has done. And are you able to tell the world where you place your faith and your trust? And we're given two things then that we should do in preparing our minds for action. The first of that, to prepare our minds for action and also to be sober-minded. I forget which translation it is. It might be the King James way back that translates being uh, preparing your mind for action as girding up the loins of your mind. It's a wonderful phrase that. But it's almost this image of this first century man with this long flowing garment that would have made it seriously difficult, if not impossible, for him to run. Would have made it almost impossible for this guy to do serious work. So to gird up the loins is to take up this flowing extra fabric, to flick it up so that he's ready. Tuck it into your belt so that you can run without tripping and falling. Get ready. That's what he's saying. That's the first thing, that's the first picture, it's the first transformative um, in the power of hope that we have is that we must prepare our minds and be ready. I guess the modern equivalent of this would be rolling your sleeves up or putting your work clothes on. Put on the right gear so that all unnecessary obstacles aren't there. You're ready for the work at hand. I wonder how good you are at weeding your garden. Ah, it's a brutal exercise, isn't it? Maybe it's just me, but every year, do you know, I, spe- I like this time of year because, of course, it's cold enough that you can't really go out and do much in the garden. It's great. And then spring comes around and all of a sudden, oh no, here we go again. And that cycle just restarts and restarts every single year. But it takes a lot of work. If you want a weed-free garden, you've got to work hard. My neighbor is one of these guys that if he could, would have a wee pair of scissors to cut along the wee bits at the edge of the grass. It's meticulous. I feel bad because he cuts his grass every week and here's me struggling every three weeks to get it done. But it takes effort. It takes effort and it takes work to keep the garden nice. You've got to have a multitude of tools to do all the bits of work that are necessary to keep it presentable and nice. Hope doesn't just happen. We don't become Christians and automatically we are hope-filled, focused people. But it is through us proactively coming to stunning chapters of the Bible like 1 Peter 1 and proactively bringing to our minds, remembering, thinking about, pondering the privileges of being God's people that help us guard the loins of our mind. We cannot become more like Jesus if we are not growing in our knowledge of him. But it takes effort, it takes energy, it takes an intentionality to time and time again bring to our minds the glorious work of the gospel. Unlike that garden analogy, we constantly must be pulling those weeds of sin out of our lives. The the lies 
the lies that the world would try and take root in us, whatever it might be, the sorrow and the sadness, the, the, the constant desire to be fully self-sufficient and self-dependent, we instead must pull those weeds and we must root firm and deep, friends, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do whatever you need to do to guard the loins of your mind because we must be a people that are cultivating the hope of God in our hearts. I think we're reminded most beautifully of this in Lamentations 3, aren't we? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Because these realities are true, it doesn't necessarily mean it gives us hope. Unless we remember, unless we meditate upon them. That's why the verse immediately before this, Lamentations 3.21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Yes, the reality is true. Yes, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases whether you believe it or not. His mercies are new every morning whether you believe it or not. His faithfulness is great whether you believe it or not ultimately is irrelevant. That is who God is. But friends, we want to know and love that Lord and set our minds upon it. You know, I was reminded this week, I was in uh, a meeting uh, with lots of kind of different people, not, not in the church, and I was reminded this week of how quickly and easily we assume we all have a good Bible knowledge. I was amazed at how quickly in that setting, we just assumed that we all knew the gospel, therefore, what's really the point of actually reminding ourselves of it? We're really good at overestimating ourselves. We're really good at overestimating how close we are to the Lord Jesus, how much we know him, and how much we love him. I think at times we get to this idea that somehow we are above basics. That somehow the, the basics actually I don't really need because I know them. But I'm simply reminded as we come here, friends, to have minds that are ready for action. And secondly, to be sober-minded. I think this is it's obviously rooted in drunkenness, the opposite of... I think it's literal and metaphorical for us. But it's saying don't drown your sorrows, your fears, your anxieties in alcohol. But actually, don't do anything else that will dull the senses. But instead, be sober, be self-controlled, be ready. Be ready for the work that is at hand. I think it's not just against drunkenness, but it's a call for us to abandon and remove all the things that might dull our spiritual sense, those things that might fill us with comfort, that draw us away for the Lord. We've all got those things. We've all got those things that when we ultimately say, will I spend time with the Lord? Will I spend time in his word? Or will I do X? If we're totally honest, X probably wins more than spending time with the Lord. I wonder what that thing is. I wonder if it's your favorite TV show, your favorite radio program. I don't know. Your newspaper reading, I don't know. But the call is to take away the things that dull us to the Lord. There are thousands of things that in themselves are not inherently sinful, but there are a thousand distractions a day to pull us away from the Lord. We're not struggling for distractions. If you are, I'd love to talk to you and learn how. But it is, we are, yeah, there are so many things that are not wrong in themselves, but so distract us from the Lord. And I think Charles Spurgeon, he tells this amazing story on this subject. I'll read you this. It's amazing. He said, one day many years back, a thick darkness 
came over the United States. Now and then in London, we have dreadfully dark days, which we can scarcely account. But this was quite a new experience for the New Englanders and caused a terrible sensation. So exceedingly black was it that the barn door falls went to roost in the middle of the day. The darkness grew worse and the people trembled in their houses, declaring that the end of the world was coming. They were both excited and alarmed. One of the houses uh, of legislature adjourned under the belief that the day of judgment was here. The other house was sitting and the blackness was so intense that everybody was in awe. An emotion was made that they should break up as the end of the world had certainly arrived. And a colonel objective objected and he said this, the judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, then there is no cause for adjourning. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that the candles may be brought out. And this was the comment that Spurgeon made on this scenario. It is dark, but whatever is going to happen or whatever is not going to happen, let us be found guarded, sober, and hopeful. And dark political times, these dark religious times, I call for candles for we mean to go on working. I think it is easy for us to look around us and think this world has gone to pot. I think it is easy for us to look around and go, Lord, where is the hope? And I think it's increasingly easy for us to go, thank goodness I'm safe with you, Lord. And I don't have to do anything about this world. I can just focus and come away and, and not worry about this world. But this was the reality. People thought the end was near, so they said, you know what, let's just stop and let's enjoy those last little little while and they said actually do you know what in the darkness which we see I don't need to give you illustrations of darkness today but let us be found guarded sober hopeful we call for candles so that we might go on working secondly then we have the transformative power of hope we have the transformative power of holiness verses 14 to 16 as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, the beginning of verse 14, he declares who we are, what our identity is. Our identity here is obedient children. That's who you are. That's how this is prefaced. This is the therefore that we find in the previous verse. This is who we are. We are obedient children. This is affirming what we read in verse 2. That we are set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkled by his blood. That's what's affirmed in verse 2. That's what's affirmed here in verse 14. And this command then for holiness follows the fact that we have been rescued from darkness that we have been brought into God's marvelous light. And what he's trying to say to us in all of this is the call to holiness is not meant to be a burden of a command to us, but it is meant to be who we really are, the children of God. Simply this, we are to become more and more like our heavenly father. Do you know, one of the things that I find most fun about having a two-year-old, watching him pick up our phrases and mannerisms, we had a little birthday party for our youngest. He was one yesterday. Um, and I was doing some stuff. And Benji turned around and went, good job, daddy. 
And I thought it was funny because I always, that's what I like to try and tell him. Good job. And it picks up. You see it all the time. You see those mannerisms, the confused faces, a little bit like my confused face. The, uh, the little comments here and there. It's amazing, isn't it? Because children pick up the phrases, the mannerisms of their parents. So it must be with us. Peter is calling for us as his readers to resemble our Heavenly Father, to look like Him, to act like Him, to love like Him. And that family resemblance is then contrasted with what has been before. Do not, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back there. Don't go there. Don't go to the places of the world but instead be obedient children. We find the words that are written above the drum kit, Romans 12, 2. That was from a a youth weekend away years ago. But those words of Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is by testing. You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't live according to the ways of the world. For some, that will be the ways that they remember of a former life before Christ. I think it refers, we have the list that Peter gives us in chapter 4, verse 3, of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking, eh, lawless idolatry, verse chapter 4. You find all those things he sets out for us that are the ways of ignorance. And I think what we have then is the ways in which hope and holiness relate to each other really clearly in this passage. How this cause and effect really works. This idea that as we face trials and difficulties and challenges in life, we are refined by the hope of God that we have. It is not a hope that accepts and only looks for safety and health and prosperity and everything else that by a worldly standard we would consider good. But it is a hope of God in the midst of trials and struggles that makes us more and more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Step by step, degree to degree. That friends, it is in the trials and the struggles and the difficulties that these believers face, that we face today, that is we see truly the source of our hope and where it must be rooted because maybe you know what it's like to go through those situations and those circumstances without the hope of the Lord Jesus. It is dark and it is hard. But even with the Lord Jesus, it's hard. But might we use everything, friends, that we face, whatever that might be, knowing that the hope we have is not few one day it will get better, but yes, one day it will get better. But actually, he stands with me in the here and now. To move to the last verse then, Peter quotes for us Leviticus chapter 19. So we're going to go there. You'll see, you don't need to open to it, but this is what, what we read. Some commands of God to the people. When you reap your fields, leave some at the sides of the field so that the poor and the travelers can come and pick them. God's people are not to steal or lie. God's people are not to oppress their neighbors. The laborers mistreat the deaf or the blind. God's people are not to be unjust or discriminate against the poor. God's people are not to hate their brother or seek out vengeance. And what's stunning as you read Leviticus chapter 11 is when you reap 
uh, your, your fields, leave the corners. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Every single command that's given to us, Leviticus 19, is tailed with, because I am the Lord your God. Because I am the Lord your God. Because I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.2, you should be holy for I am holy. And then this is set out for us. It goes on, it goes much further than this. There's instructions of how you treat your daughter, honor the elderly, how you treat strangers, how you do just business dealings. But each one of them is followed by I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. What's the point in this? Why does Peter quote it? Why on earth would he go to Leviticus 19 of all places? Well, the Exodus comes first. There's grace and then Leviticus, the law. We have grace and the law. And, and, and what God is doing is saying, um, your conduct and who you are and all that you do is shaped by the one that you love. Simply saying that your allegiance will prove true. Your allegiance to Jesus will transform what you do. It will transform how you live, what you pursue, what you delight in every single aspect of life. See, friends, there can't be any part of our lives that do not come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because being a child of God changes everything. It's not just an insurance policy for the future, but faith and hope are a transformative power now. How's it seen? We're to live justly, to love our neighbor, to consider the marginalized, the poor, the traveler, the blind, the deaf. As children of God, our allegiances are to Christ and Christ alone. So it will be seen in who we are and how we live. So to finish that off, we have then the most glorious of good news as God's people. We have been born again into a living hope that dislodges any sort of misplaced hope you might have or have ever had. Why? Because our hope is built on grace. If your hope isn't built on grace, friends, this morning, I urge you to ask the question of what is your hope in? And actually, how firm is that hope? How firm is that ground? And I urge you to consider the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we set our hope on him, as we remove the lesser hopes, the idols, the lesser loves, the things in our lives that dull us in our walk with the Lord, I think we begin to unearth that our idols are those of comfort and security. That's what we've been unpacking the last couple of weeks in Jonah in our evening services. Please, we'd love to see tonight. Simon will be leading us through the next part of our series in Jonah. But ultimately, that's where we've come to so far in the story of Jonah. There is this man, a good standing prophet with God. And God says, go, arise and go. And Jonah says, my comfort comes first, goodbye God. That's what he does. And so often that is the reaction of our hearts. But you know, friends, there is nothing more beautiful, is there, than encountering somebody who's like Jesus. There's nothing more refreshing than talking to somebody or spending time with somebody that resembles something beautiful of who the Lord Jesus is. You walk away from those conversations thinking, man, I wish I could be a little bit more like them. I wish I could be a little bit more 
like Jesus. And you can. But it is done, friends, by us setting our hearts fully on verses 1 to 12, on the hope that we have through Jesus. So this morning, if you're low on hope, if you carry a huge burden of worry, of anxiety, of struggle, I urge you, and I'm glad you're listening this morning, because Jesus is the answer. And I urge you to consider Jesus as the answer. To take your eyes off the lesser hopes, the insufficient hopes, the things that ultimately will not lead you to anywhere but disappointment. And instead set your hopes fully on Jesus. Why? Because there is storehouses of hope. There is limitless hope for you in him. And it's there and it's available to all who would come and surrender, to all who would come and believe. This isn't some temporary relief, hope of the Lord Jesus is not temporary. But of course it is that spring of living water and eternal life that will transform you from top to bottom inside and reaching out to be seen in your life. Do you know it's amazing that even this morning we can consider what it means to be more like God. It's incredible that those of us once enemies and strangers and far away, he might call us to himself. So friends, let's set our hope and our hearts upon that. Might we consider the things that we need to let go of so that we might clearly see the hope of the Lord Jesus being worked out in our lives. Holiness has such a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? I don't know what pops into your head when you hear the word. Maybe it's the phrase holier than thou. Maybe it's those connotations of something that maybe just always seems a little bit grumpy. I don't know. I don't know what connotations you have. But in reality, holiness is just to delight more and more in him. To experience the joy that never disappoints and to stand in trials and suffering that ultimately will result in his praise and glory and honor. There will be a day that the suffering met by the elect exiles here and the elect exiles today will come to an end. There will be a day where there'll be no more, how long do we have to wait, Lord? There will be a day when all injustice is made right, a day when there is no more pandemics, there is no more human trafficking, there is no more abortion, there is no more racism, there is no more disease, there is no more murder, there is no more brokenness in our hearts or in the world. There will be a day when God will answer the cries of, Lord, how long? But until then, friends, we marvel at the hope that we have in him. And we sing our praises to him. And we rejoice whatever we face because he is Lord, he is good, and there is a steadfast hope. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel that you would send your son, the Lord Jesus, to walk amongst us, to walk as we do, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That we might not only be restored, that we might know you and love you, but that we might now be conformed more and more into your image, into your likeness. Lord, in this week ahead, may we set our hope firmly upon you. Those little distractions, those things that pull us away from you, 
though maybe not sinful in themselves. Lord, help us grow in our knowledge that we might grow in our love, that we might grow more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.